Well, welcome and uh, for those joining us online and certainly those in the room, I'm just so glad we can share this time together and hope that it is a blessing to your faith and a real encouragement to be reminded that there is a God who loves us and is for us, not against us. So I just love those words that we've heard from Graham. Uh, I think it's significant that someone with such stature in our denomination, the Wesleyans that is, to say one of the things I'm really looking forward to in heaven is that we can do away with denominations and just be so fascinated with Christ himself. There was a little blooper in the video uh, that where, where it was mentioned that Brisbane and beyond can attend the GLS. It's actually an access only event. So that should just spur you on even more to want to book in because we can't open it to the public due to COVID restrictions. So it will only be for the local church here. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians and we've been considering the greatest return of all, which is the return of Christ and how that triggers great hope in all of our lives, or at least should, as we think about putting our faith and trust in him. It's time for a review. We've been a few weeks in this space now and I want to know, have you learnt anything yet? So here's, here's the exam. We, we started the first couple of weeks by considering some big ideas about the end times. Anyone want to dare yell out a, an answer of, of one of those big ideas that we've talked about? I'll start off and then you can give me number two. We've been saying the what is uncertain. Sorry, the what is certain. The when is very uncertain. So we don't know when Christ is returned. We only know that he is returning. The what is certain. The when is very uncertain. So the minute you hear somebody say February 22nd, 2024, you know that person's a nutcase because Jesus told us nobody knows the day of the hour. So that was one. Any other people here willing to be brave enough to yell out a guess? No, I'll take anything at this point. Early believers live with a sense of urgency. It's easily spotted from a New Testament perspective. They felt the coming of Christ was going to happen in their lifetime. They thought that, that Jesus was, they were going to see it personally with their eyes. They weren't going to die before this coming occurred. They were very, very sure it was going to happen in their lifetime. And it dramatically affected their everyday lives. We talked about such issues as marriage and uh, buying property and so on. These things that we consider a normal part of Australian life now actually lost appeal to them because they were so entrenched in this idea that Jesus is coming against him. Why would I bother getting married? Why would I bother investing in a house loan for 25 years if Jesus is coming again? And they drew ongoing encouragement from it, we said also. It wasn't a fear-based thing for them. It was an exciting thing. There's some of the big ideas we've been talking about so far. Last week, we sort of looked away from the Thessalonian church for a moment. We followed the flow of the, the book and we considered the Apostle Paul himself, the writer, because at the beginning of chapter two here, we saw him defending himself against unfair criticism. And so we considered last weekend what that looks like, how to handle criticism that's unfair, how Jesus handled it, how Paul handled it, and how we should go about handling it in our lives when it comes to us. Today is kind of part B to this discussion. It's Paul continuing on, justifying himself as a true representative of Christ in the face of people questioning his leadership abilities. But we broaden our conversation out a little 
And we're going to talk about how to spot authenticity. How do we know who's for real when they come and present to us as a messenger from God? And how do we know who to dismiss? How to spot authenticity? If you've lived any length of life, you've probably come across some insincere people. And when that happens, what can happen to your heart is the level of cynicism just rises and rises and rises. But if, we're, if we don't check that, what happens is, is we kind of live our life suspicious of everybody. And that's not a healthy place to be. We need to um, protect ourselves, yes. We don't just offer our heart to everybody that walks past. But on the other hand, this, this level of cynicism is not a healthy place to land when it comes to everyone and everything. Even in churches, we need a good filter though. And what the Bible gives us is a no to cynicism, but an absolute yes to discernment. And even by the time we get to Thessalonians, the end of Thessalonians in the last chapter here, we're going to find the Apostle Paul having to correct this church because they got so cynical of everybody that they were actually throwing out a lot of good stuff. And he has to say to them in the final chapter, hey, hey, don't be so cynical about everybody that you actually think no, nothing is from God. That's actually an unhealthy place to be. Instead, learn to discern. And that's our task as we jump into the second half of chapter two here, to grow in skills of discernment. How to spot authenticity. I'm picking up the reading, 1 Thessalonians chapter two, reading from verse nine. Don't you remember... Dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you. Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we could not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news. You yourselves are our witnesses and so is God that we were devout, honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Verse 13, therefore, we never stop thanking God that you received his message from us. You didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. And then dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen in this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea, who because of their belief in Christ, Jesus suffered from their own people, the Jews. But some of the Jews killed the prophets and even some killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. We're going to stop right there mid-verse because next week, and we're picking up a fascinating discussion, which is how much power does Satan have? Because Paul's going to go on and write in verse 18 that we wanted to come back and visit you, but the enemy blocked us, prevented us and used people to do so. That's next weekend. Right now, how do we get discernment skills? We're going to break this conversation into two parts. First of all, what do we look for in a speaker, in someone presenting as a messenger of God? How do we know that's an authentic presenter? But secondly... As a listener, we're never off the hook either. So what's an authentic response to hearing the good news of Jesus? First, how to discern a true gospel messenger. How to discern a true gospel messenger. 
it's important to, to realise or to be able to identify whether our source is good or not. In a day and age where there's so much material out there, whether it be on YouTube, on podcasts, in books, etc., there's just ample material everywhere and we've got a real task to work out which is from God and which isn't. Paul gives a model here about signposts that can help us discern that as we apply this test of discernment. And I notice that he starts by by clarifying his genuineness by what he's not. Notice in verse 3, I did not present the good news with deceit. I did not operate with impure motives or trickery or flattery. Verse 5, I did not enter your city just to sponge money off you. That was not my style at all. So there's all the things he did not do because he was sincere. And this is what he did do, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10, he says, if you're looking for the real deal, someone who's truly a godly messenger, Look at this. We work so hard among you night and day to not be a burden and we were devout and honest and faultless in our approach. That's a pretty high bar that Paul just sets right there. When it comes down to an authentic messenger of Christ, we look for these traits. So I'll paraphrase them. And my first point here is an authentic gospel messenger is honest and hardworking. Honest and hardworking. That's what Paul says he was like. I worked Long and hard, day and night, with pure motives. I didn't kind of switch on when people were watching and switch off when they turned around. My intention was to please only God. Honest and hardworking. Let's start with honesty. What's that mean? An honest person is good for their word. Their yes means yes, their no means no. You're not continually second guessing. I wonder if they'll show up or not. I mean, they said they would. But it's 20 minutes past the time and they're still not here. I wonder what their excuse will be this time. My father used to often say to me, tell the truth, son, and then you won't have to remember your previous version of the story. Tell the truth, because when you're a liar, you always, always, always have to remember what you said last time to make sure the story next time lines up. If you're a truth teller, you don't have to remember what you said last time because it will line up. People that play games who are great at spinning a story eventually get caught out. You know how they tell one person, I didn't go to that event because um, I couldn't be bothered. And then they tell another person they didn't go to the event because they had a gastro bug. And it's like, which is it? Couldn't be bothered or you're really, really sick. And eventually the stories catch up. What is it? People detect that lack of sincerity and it'll become a major turnoff. There's a story goes that a school teacher had four troublesome year 12 girls and they continued to, to rock up late for school every single day without fail. And the story was always new and different, but it was always a load of hogwash. And this school teacher was onto it. She knew, she knew they weren't telling the truth. And so this particular day, they turned up late yet again and there's four of them. And so the teacher had this brainwave of an idea. I know what I'll do, she says. So without letting them speak to each other and convene a meeting, she said, all four of you move to four separate rooms and then I'll come and see you. So after they all end up in their four separate rooms, the teacher goes into them one by one and say, tell me which tire was flat. <laughs> and of course, this story got 
found out. Someone who represents Christ won't be a perfect model, but they should be known as a person of honesty. How can they be entrusted with God's truth if they themselves aren't truthful people? Paul was honest. He was a fair income guy and this qualified him as a genuine messenger of Christ. This is much harder as we travel into a world online, yeah? And many of the preachers and teachers I guess you hear about, you only know from across the airways. This becomes a much harder diagnosis to work out, are they the real deal or not? But if you're listening carefully and your antennas are up, you'll begin to detect things. It's not enough to say, well, they're a powerful preacher. It doesn't matter if they exaggerate a little. It doesn't matter if they said 20, if you know, 200 people got baptised last week and it was only really 20. I mean, the whole idea is they're trying to drum up attention to the gospel. So that's OK, yeah? Uh, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's dishonest. And we ought to take notice of that. Preachers need integrity. It's hard to pick all this up, but... Just pay attention and along the way you'll, you'll begin to detect things like the last time they were corrected. Do they ever give evidence of that? Or that they're accountable to this group of people. Do they ever speak of that? Their word is good. This is what a genuine gospel preacher should be known for. It also talks about Paul's hardworking ethic here. He's not only honest, he's hardworking. Let's speak about that for a moment. I think there's not many things that dishonour the name of Christ more than a lazy preacher. Should be an oxymoron, a huge contradiction. Now, in the generation before me, there was this big focus on burnout and many of those um, preachers uh, left ministry early because they burn out. But here's the thing I've noticed in life. Whenever we uh, correct, we overcorrect. Or whenever we react, we overreact. So instead of just coming back towards the middle and go, hey, we need to also value family and rest, etc., we end up way, way, way over here. And the preachers of this generation, younger than me even, are now talking about only being available in business hours and things of that nature. They've overcorrected, they've overreacted. And sure, the gospel isn't a career, it's a calling. And it will require a lot of work. And this isn't just for preachers. This is for anyone who names the name of Christ. Laziness shouldn't be able to be attached to anybody's name who says they are a Christ follower. The Bible says whatever we do, we're called to give it 110%. Work at it with all your heart as though working for the Lord and not for man. Verse 9 here where Paul mentions that night and day we toiled to make our own way. The original Greek word toiled is, is, it has, has the idea of pain and strain involved in it. Now you might say, why would Paul go through such a struggle? I mean, why work so hard? Well, because the food just wasn't going to appear on the table magically. Someone had to sacrifice to get it there. And Paul said, I'll be the one. I'm not going to go into a new city and expect people who are hearing the gospel for the first time to be the ones paying to hear it. And so he took the hit. He worked hard. He worked his finger to the bone in order to provide a true gospel message. Next, we can see that a true gospel messenger is affectionate to people, but accountable to God. A few years back, a friend and I 
went to see quite a famous preacher. The friend was in my leadership team at the time that I'm referring to. And I won't mention the preacher because it's a negative story. But we went to see this famous preacher who has books out and CDs out and, you know, is online and all that sort of stuff and quite a well-known name. We went to see this preacher and there were coffee breaks throughout this conference and he was kind of walking through the crowd and, you know, there was opportunity to say hello to him, only he wasn't very interested in saying hello. So I, I talked to him a little. My friend, though, was looking for a much deeper conversation than me, but he was particularly disillusioned by this. I mean, how can this guy be so dynamic up the front on stage and be so disinterested when he walked off the stage? Now, I get it. I'm a natural introvert and being up front is taxing to me. Uh, if I had my way, I'd be hiding somewhere in the back corner here if it weren't for God calling me into this. It doesn't come naturally to me and it takes a lot out of me to live in the public face like this. However, I give you permission if ever I'm rude off this platform to give me a clip under the ear because there's no place. There's no place for living one way here and another way here. And my friend, uh, as we're driving away from the day where I'm referring to this particular well-known preacher, he, he said, that guy's a phony. That guy's a phony. And if I had opportunity to come and see him again, I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't take it. He was so blown away by this huge discrepancy between how this person presented on stage and how he presented off stage. Paul was nothing like that. In verse 7 and 8 here, he, you can see his affection for this church runs deep. This is fascinating in view of the short time he spent in the city, but he let the people get in here. They got into his heart. It wasn't just a job for Paul to tick off preaching. It wasn't just, oh, well, another week I can tick off that. It, it was that he didn't just give them a message. It says, I gave myself to you. And he uses parental language here to demonstrate his strong love for them. As a father watches over his kids, verse 11, so I've done for you. As a nursing mother affectionately attends to her infant, so I deeply and tenderly care for you. I find this um, tension that Paul manages really, really wisely here. See, when you care deeply for people, it puts you in a position of power. And, and when, you, when you have the runs on the board where people trust you and you have a leadership position, you can manipulate people. But Paul refuses to do that. He makes these people accountable to God. They're not clones of Paul. He says it's God that you're accountable to and his prayer is that they'll live a life worthy in response to God. I remember a person came into my previous church and made this comment to me. It was supposed to be a compliment, but it freaked the life out of me. The comment was this. I've been searching for a preacher I could trust for the last 35 years, and finally I've found one. And I just saw red flashing lights. I said, whoa, don't put me on a pedestal. I'm just a human being. I mean, I'll be sure to lay you down at some point in time too. Preachers must posture themselves carefully so not to become idols. And I like what Paul does here. He doesn't manipulate people. He uses 
his power to point them back towards God. At a wider angle here in this chapter, as we mentioned earlier, Paul is defending himself against the criticism that he's not a legitimate leader. And yet rather than make himself the centre of the story here, 14 times he uses the word God throughout this passage. It's a, he just keeps on referring them back to God. You're accountable to God. You, you, your calling is from God. So here's a key point in how we spot authenticity in ministry. The preacher deflects credit and deflects attention and puts it back on Christ, not themselves. Their response is to have their head down and work honestly and faithfully. That's the gospel messenger. What about a gospel response? What about on behalf of the listener? Let's talk about that for a few moments because we can be paranoid about making sure the teaching we receive is right, but far less paranoid about whether our response to all of this great teaching is right. And the Bible never gives us a pass on just saying, yeah, yeah, I believe that in my head. The Bible's always looking for action. It, it expects us to receive truth in the head, yeah, but it must then hit our heart and it must eventually work its way into our hands, into our life, or it means nothing. James says so. The Bible says faith without works is dead. It's dead. It's useless. So the Bible doesn't give us a pass just on intellectual assent. You know, oh, yeah, it's all right. I believe in that. No, no, no. It must work its way into our lifestyle. It did for the church here. A genuine gospel response involves receiving the message as sacred. Verse 13 is the key here. While these folks at Thessalonica heard Paul's words, it wasn't that Paul's presentation was amazing to them. You know, he dazzled them with his PowerPoint and with his sermon props. They were just so alive. No, no, it wasn't that at all. It was the message, the message, the message that they held on to as sacred. We're no longer talking about the messenger. We're now talking about the message. And for them, that's what mattered most. You know what this removes? Whether or not you like the preacher. At the end of the day, some preachers are better than others and some people, you know, kind of we relate to better than others. But at the end of the day, if the word of God is being open and read, it ought to have us on the edge of our seat because it's the word of God. Like, let's take that shit most seriously. That's the sacred part. My friend Wai Kuang, who I referred to a few weeks back, who worked in the underground church in China, he would, he would tell me about the stories and he said, the Bible readings, Jono, amazing. He said, these people walk three, three hours to arrive at church. They walk three hours to arrive at church. And how much do they read? Not four verses or six verses or eight verses like we would commonly do. He said, they'll stand up and say, the Bible reading today is Genesis chapter 30 to chapter 50. And they'll read 20 or 30 chapters. They just sit there for hours and listen to the word of God because they're so hungry for it. And he said, they, John, they receive the message with tears. There's tears running down as they hear this, this news about Jesus because they don't own their own Bibles and it's so precious to them to hear the message. And it's hot and it's long and they just don't move because they're so hungry for that word of God. 
I recognise some preachers are more relatable than others. As you think about people that you enjoy, you're going to say, well, when Callie shares, I mean, every single time, like, you know, my heart walks away on fire. And when Kyle shares, not so much. I mean, he's a bit more plain to me. Well, that's OK. But how about we decide in advance? How about we be a church that decides in advance, it doesn't matter whether it's Mark or Michelle or Kyle or Kerry, that, that when the Word of God is open, we are going to switch on. We are going to be fertile ground. We are going to have our hearts ready to receive it because we treat the message as being so sacred, which it is. They didn't take these words in because they were Paul's words. They weren't looking for clever human intellect. They were hungry for truth. And another response we see here, and the final one I want to point out, is they persevered through challenges. One of the biggest fears for someone in Paul's position, a coach, a leader, a mentor, looking on at young believers, you you, you look at them as he did here from a distance because he's had to flee the city. And he looks back at this church and he prays deeply for them and he loves them dearly. And the question on his mind is, how are they going to cope when the heat comes? Because the heat comes. Life throws curveballs. Challenges will come. This church persevered. We read about it. And we said a couple of weeks ago, life is far more about what's happening in us than what's happening to us. Any decision to follow Jesus will be deeply challenged. Theirs was. Verse 14 told us that, as did the, in the first chapter in verse 6. It said their suffering was severe, severe. Although only being brand new to faith, they kept moving forward. It didn't deter them from following Jesus. Now, it just goes to show suffering isn't a blocker for Christian growth. It's a trigger for Christian growth. This is tough though. Hey, when you're in the middle of that, easy to know it in theory, but when you're right there in the hot seat, all of the theory kind of goes out the window and you've got a choice to make, will I continue to step forward or not? And it's hard and it's confusing. And you've asked and I've asked, if I'm on God's path and I'm trying to be obedient to Him, then why is this so hard? Why is this so challenging? The preacher told me that if I followed Jesus, I would become healthy, wealthy and wise. We'll go back to point A in this, in this message. They haven't been an authentic messenger. They were telling fibs. Blessed, yes, absolutely. There's blessing in following Jesus. But the healthy, wealthy, wise bit, uh-uh. We don't have to look anywhere else other than Thessalonians to find this in our Bibles. In the next chapter, it'll say, we were destined for suffering. We were destined for it. But this suffering isn't bad news. It's actually good news. It shows you are participants in the Jesus story. This is what we read in our reading tonight. And it could likely be more so evidence that I'm on God's pathway if I'm facing challenges than that I've left God's pathway. Suffering could well be a reflection that I am living obedient to Christ rather than a marker that I've somehow slipped off the track. As we reflect on these responses to a true gospel presentation, a big challenge the modern church must wrestle with is this. Are we here to get decisions 
or we're here to make disciples because they're not one and the same. I don't want to create a false dichotomy there. Yes, disciples need to make good decisions, absolutely. But if you haven't seen it yet, you probably will. There's many churches across the world at a time like this who value decisions the most. And what they want is for every meeting to end with people's hands up so they can say, well, such, such and such number made a decision tonight to follow Christ or whatever it might be. But what Jesus asks of us is to be disciples, actually. And disciples just make daily decisions of obedience every single day, even when it's hard, because most of the time it is. I had a very formative experience when I was young in faith. I coordinated this musical band to come to my town, me and one other guy in particular. And this group, their target audience was young people and they worked around the schools in the town for the week they were there. And it culminated in a Friday night concert where we got 300 youth turn up to the local high school. Now in a small country town, that's revival. When you get 300 youth turn up to this, this, this high school gymnasium and this band are up the front playing and sadly they manipulated the situation. They played all of their loud headbanging music and then it got to the end of the night and they had the keyboardists playing because everything turns spiritual when the keyboardist starts playing, which reminds me I need the music team to come back up on the stage now because it's about time that they made me sound spiritual. So music team, take that as your cue. So, so the keyboardist starts playing and they're manipulating the situation. And these young people you can see are responding, but not having a clue really what they're responding to. So the, 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 the gospel message was essentially, hey, come to Jesus because he'll make your life so much better. So these hundreds of young people are flooding to the to front. And as a new believer myself, I'm so pumped by this. I'm thinking, whoa, this is amazing. And me and this one other guy had the responsibility of follow up. And can I tell you in the week, second week, third week, I, I, I poured out hundreds of dollars from my own pocket to invest in follow-up material, Bibles and all, all the like because I was just so excited what was going on. I just wanted to be so, so behind what God was doing. And as we contacted all these young people in the weeks that followed, can I tell you how many were interested in going on with that decision? That many. None of them. None of them even had a clue what they did on that night. When they got back to their school that Monday, it was all lost. It wasn't an authentic gospel message that they responded to and therefore they didn't have an authentic gospel response. Would you stand with me for prayer? Jesus never said to us, invite me into your life. He rather invited us into his life. He said, come follow me. Come follow me. You say, well, why would I, John? If what you're promising is actually that there's a challenging road ahead and things will be difficult and I lose control of my own decisions in some respects. 
because you're not really living until you start following Jesus. If what you've heard tonight is that you need to be better, you need to try harder, then you've heard an incomplete gospel message. The message really is this. You need to know you're loved. And it's in knowing how much we are loved by this Creator God that we love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. And then that gives us the right motivation for right living. So Holy Spirit, we surrender to You in this moment. We ask that we would be so in tune with Your call on our life. We ask for that which is false, it would fall to the ground right now in Jesus' name. And that we would embrace the true gospel message. And that we would have such a passion to follow you, not for what we're going to get out of it, but because what else do we have? We say the words with Peter, you alone have the words of eternal life. God, so we surrender to you in this moment. We lay down our lives, our disappointments, our cynicism, our hurts. We ask that you would show us once again what it looks like to follow you, Jesus. Give us a fresh start right now. We commit ourselves to it. Amen.